Amen. Well, we're beginning a new series today called Church Unpacked. Church Unpacked. And this really came about um, as a result of a few years, really, of, of just journeying this question through with people. What is church? What should church be? And this question, you know, it's very simple, isn't it? What's church? Well, we all know what church is, don't we? It's a place we go on Sundays. It's a place that Christians go. But is it? <laughs> is that what church is? You know, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, anybody come across that name before? Martin Lloyd-Jones was the minister of Westminster Chapel back in the last century. Uh, he was the pastor there, or the minister there rather, from around 1938, somewhere around then, a bit, bit later maybe, um, through until the, was it the late 70s, early 80s, Mum? 70s, yeah. He passed away in 1981. But honestly, he is regarded as one of the greatest preachers in, in British history and uh, has a lot of fantastic things to say about church and what church should be. And I listened to one of his lectures this week on church and he said something really quite striking. He said that he was certain of one thing. He was certain that the failure of Christian ministers, the failure of Christian ministers to teach their congregations the doctrine of the church was the main reason for most of the problems that we're encountering in the church right now. So he said the main reason for all of the problems with worldliness, with sin, with false teaching, with confusion, with weakness in the visible church today is because ministers have just stopped teaching about what church is supposed to be. And I think it's a very strong statement, but I'm actually, I'm inclined to agree with him on that uh, because it's true. Uh, there's such a lack of teaching, solid biblical teaching on what church is. And so there's no surprise that many Christians don't really know what church is supposed to be, what the purpose of it is, what the nature of church is, what they are actually doing, uh, going there. And I think that's the fault of ministers not teaching on it. And it goes even deeper than that. In fact, I've got a good number of theology books at home. And if I open up a systematic theology book, the start of it is usually given over to the doctrine of God. So we're talking about the Trinity, we're talking about who Jesus is, the Father is. And sometimes the doctrine of the church is just not even there. It's not even covered in a theology book. So it's not just the pastors, it's the theologians. There's just this weird lack of interest in the church. That wasn't always the case though. Before the Reformation, and we'll I'm really excited to get into some church history in this series. We're going to do that. It's going to be a bit different than normal. It will be kind of, I mean, it scares me to be not quite so just in the text, but I think this is necessary actually um, to help us ground our understanding of the church. We're going to do some church history. We're going to look at why we think the way we do now about the church here in the 21st century. And in order to do that, we have to kind of go back in time and we need to come back, not just the last 200 years, but the last 500 years. And not even just the last 500 years, but the last 1,000 years to see how Christians thought about church in 
1200 AD, how they thought about church in 500 AD, because all of those things have actually impacted the way we see it today. So this kind of lack of teaching on the church wasn't actually always the case. Before the Reformation, there was so much teaching about the church. The Roman Catholic Church talked a whole lot about the Roman Catholic Church. And they saw the church itself as the mother of faith. And in, in fact, they probably, well, they definitely overemphasized the power and place of this thing we call church. And then since the Reformation, there's been a change in that. And we're going to look into what changes have happened. We're going to look into how maybe those changes hundreds of years ago have impacted our thinking. Because I think we, we, have to, I think we have to be willing to understand here in this church that maybe our understanding, my understanding of what church is, hasn't actually just been shaped by the Bible. It may have been shaped not just by the Bible, but by other things, by other influences, by theology, by traditions, by my upbringing. And when we do that, when we look into the word again, I think during this series, we're going to be able to get a more biblical understanding of what this is all supposed to be about and how this fits into the global church and what your place and role is here in this local church. I think this is what this is all about. It's about getting back into the word to understand what church is, to understand the marks of a true church and to understand how far maybe we've come from that and then also acknowledging that maybe all of us here have a lens that we're viewing through church through which isn't all biblical, right? I think that's healthy, don't you? Like, how many of you, I want to ask this question just as a show of hands, how many of you have changed a particular belief you had in the last five years? It doesn't have to be a Christian belief. It'd be anything. How many of you have changed a belief in the last five years? Wow. What sorts of things made you change? Just shout out, what, what made you change? You don't have to tell me what the belief was, but why did you change that belief? experience truth some understanding okay research context so 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 interesting so experience that's a good one so lived experience can be a reason that we change a pre-existing belief so our experience can teach us something about reality can't it Somebody else said, research, research, so looking into things and finding new information can be another thing that helps us to change our minds about something. And as Christians, sorry, Facebook's going off, somebody's getting angry on the live stream, um, <laughs> but as Christians, this is actually really healthy, isn't it? to do a bit of digging, to reevaluate beliefs we've held for a long time. It can be, I don't know about you, how many of you found it a bit disconcerting to change your mind about something? Some of you did. How many found it liberating? Yeah. It can be both, can't it? To change our minds about something can be both a bit scary because maybe we've believed something for a long time 
And now we've changed that belief slightly and it can be a little bit unnerving. Equally, it can be really liberating. The truth shall set you free, exactly. So it can be both, but we've got to be willing to be vulnerable, haven't we? In all of your decisions to change your beliefs about something, you had to do something. You all had to accept that you might be wrong, right? You could be wrong about something. And I think that's a good place to be, okay, in certain areas. And many of us as Christians don't do this enough. We're scared. And I I think for many years, I don't know about you, but I used to be scared to really examine my faith because I thought if I examine it really thoroughly, what if I find out it's not true? What if I find out that what I've been believing in and following for 20 years isn't true? It will just destroy me. And so for many years, I kind of left my Christianity alone, unexplored, because I was worried I might find it to be false. Whereas in other areas of my life, in education, I would happily explore, I would would happily experience new things, I would research, because these things didn't actually uh, have the power to derail my life. Okay, you know, my understanding of the philosophy of Immanuel Kant at university, changing my mind about my perception of his work is not going to derail my life. However, making a decision to change my mind about what the Bible says about Christ and salvation, this could really affect me. And so it wasn't really until I started studying the Bible more, started studying apologetics and just found it to be overwhelmingly true uh, to a point where it's just like, no other worldview makes sense. Uh, you know, I was absolutely convinced of its truth. Then I felt so secure to be able to look again at scriptures and reevaluate certain other beliefs I had. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to go on a little journey, just exploring scripture. And I would just say from the outset, are we okay to just be vulnerable? Are we okay to just be willing to be like, hey, I might have some beliefs about church that, that I need to change. You know, in the I need to do this too as I'm teaching through it. I have to be willing to do that too. So that's that's the heart that I want for us to to come to this study with. Is like, am I willing to have my heart and my mind shaped again, afresh, from the scriptures about what church is supposed to be about? Yeah, and I think this is so healthy, and I think this is something that we've just really been excited to do as Hope City Church was to have. Um, have a church where it's safe to study these things through and to trust the Holy Spirit in your lives to be able to help you understand these things. I, I think it's so, so exciting to be able to do this kind of thing where we take a deep dive into scripture, where we do a bit of church history. And, and, and I, it's one thing me and the leadership have been hoping to have really at Hope City Church is a church of people that are aware of their place in church history and are not just kind of taking it for granted. Um, Because you speak to many Christians today in Protestant churches, they don't know why they're Protestant. They don't know why they're not Catholic. They, They wouldn't be able to tell you why they don't take Mass instead of Communion. I remember I was at a Christian youth festival a few years years back and the person on the platform said, hey, we're going to take communion up front, we're going to take mass in the back and there'll be a priest at the back. So if you want to go there, that's fine, you want to come in. And I nearly blew up. And the people around me were like, why are you getting so mad? I was like, people burned at the stake for this. 
People literally burned at the stake for the difference between those two things. And now we're just like, hey, if you want to do that one, that's cool. If you want to do this one, that's cool. We don't care. <laughs> but people were literally martyred for this. I was in Oxford just last, last week and I was stood on Martyr's Cross where Ridley and Latimer were burned at the stake for their theology of the Lord's Supper. And now we just don't care. And I just want to have a church where we are going to care about these things again. So what is church? That's the question today. What is church? If you ask somebody on the street, what is church? What do you think they're going to say? Some will say a building. That's right, isn't it? If you, if you talk to somebody out on the streets and you say, what's church? They say, well, that's a church there. So it's a building. What, what might somebody else say? What is church? Religion, an institution. It's organized religion. You speak to a lot of people, don't you? And you say, I want to tell you about Jesus. Do you believe in God? I believe in God. I'm spiritual, but I don't like organized religion. So some people might say, church is religion. What else might you get as an answer? Any other suggestions? I'd say probably those two are the most common, aren't they? Church is a building that we go to, that Christians go to. But secondly, it would be like, it's a religion. It's an institution. It's an organization. I think another common understanding of what church is, if you were to speak to Christians now, not people on the street, but Christians, you say, what's a church? Right? What answers might you get? Family. Yeah, church is family. What else? The Israel, well, you would. <laughs> and I think that would be a really solid understanding of what church is. We'll get into that. But I think community, family, the Israel of God. What other ideas might you get if you spoke to Christians? What's church? Believers, yeah. The church is believers. Very good. And that's true, isn't it? What else might we get? Church is to practice your faith. That's interesting. She didn't say it's a place to practice your faith. She said church is to practice your faith. That's actually really interesting, isn't it? Church is a thing we do rather than a place we go. Yeah, you might get those kinds of answers. You might get somebody saying, well, it's a community of people who are pursuing a vision together. That's another kind of common understanding of what church is. Or you might get the kind of understanding of, well, church is you. Church is me. I'm the church. You're the church a more individualistic understanding of what church is. What we're going to do today is we're just going to do something really simple in the next, I haven't even set my timer. Somebody tell me how long I've been going for. 10 minutes? I don't want to go longer than half an hour. So all the aim is today is to try and do a word study. We're going to do a word study today. And there's so much more I wanted to get into, but I think it's probably best we just stick to a very simple word study and try to understand from that one word, the Greek word ecclesia, which is the word for church in the New Testament. Just try and understand what that word ecclesia means. That's all. And in the coming weeks and months, we will get into a lot more depth about the character of the church, the nature of the church, the purpose of the church, and also what your roles are. But today, we're going to keep it real simple. We're going to do a word study because 
The word for church in the Bible isn't actually church. In the original language, it's not church. The word church that we have, does anybody know where that comes from? Church? Well, it comes from, first it comes from the kind of the German and the Dutch, Kirk, the old Anglo-Saxon word Kirk, okay? And that's believed to have come, this is really boring, so stick with me. <laughs> that word Kirk is to, believed to have come from a Greek word, which is kuriakon. How many of you know a little bit of Greek? What's the word kurios? Kurios. Anyone heard the song Kyrie eleison? You know that, don't you, from school assemblies and stuff, right? But kurios is the Greek word for Lord. So in the New Testament, when anybody said to Jesus, Lord, they're saying kurios, kurios. Kuriakon is a Greek word which means of the Lord, of the Lord, or house of the Lord. Because oikon is house, kurios is Lord, kuriakon, house of the Lord, okay? So church, the word church means house of the Lord. And so it kind of, it's understandable now when we know that the word church means house of the Lord, it's kind of understandable why people think church is a building. Because essentially that's what the word kirk means. House of the Lord. But that's not the word that's used in the New Testament. Or the Old Testament. Did you know the word church appears in the Old Testament? That's an interesting, wasn't it? There wasn't just a church in the New Testament. There's a church in the Old Testament. But the word used for church in the Bible is not Kyriakon. It's not church. It's not Kirk. It's the word Ecclesia. Say Ecclesia. Ecclesia. And this word Ecclesia, going to get really boring again for a few minutes, so please stick with me. This word Ecclesia is made up of two Greek words. Ek, say ek, don't spit, ek, and kaleo, say kaleo. Ek means out of, okay, so out of, and kaleo, anybody guess what kaleo means? Sounds a bit like the English word call, doesn't it? Kaleo, call, it means called, so you've got out of, kaleoed, called out, called out, so ecclesia means to be called out. The called out ones is what Ecclesia means. So that's one meaning of that word. Church. To be church means to be called out. Can a building be called out? You can't call out a building. <laughs> Can you call out an institution? Can you speak to an institution, an organization? You can't speak to an institution, but you can speak to people. So Ecclesia is called out ones. It's a group of people. What are they called out of? Well, let me, let me explain a few things. The Bible says about the church, about the Ecclesia of God. Firstly, these are people, not buildings, not institutions, not organizations, not religion, not individuals, but a group of people who are called out, who are ekkaleoed out of the world. 
John 15, 19, Jesus says, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you're not of the world, but I chose you. I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So Jesus is choosing people out of the world. Again, this word world, I could spend a whole sermon preaching on this word because it means about 14 different things in the Bible. So whenever you read that word world in your New Testament, be sure to understand that dependent on the context, it can mean so many different things. Because guess what? You are still in the world, aren't you? Jesus called you out of the world, but you're not literally out of this planet. You're sat here in the world. <coughs> so what does world mean here? The world here means the rest of mankind. It means essentially mankind outside of the grace of God. Sinful mankind. The church has been called out of the sinful mass of mankind so it's got to look what it's got to look different from the world it's called out of the world secondly the church is called out of sin called out of sin this is another really really important thing that I love that we're getting to understand as we teach through the scriptures is that guess what sin is a really big problem it's a really big deal. It's, in fact, Paul talks about it as spiritual death, spiritual blindness. Ephesians 2 verses 1 to 7 says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Dead. What can a dead person do? Can a dead person choose? I've never seen a dead person choose. If I offer a masala club takeout menu to a dead person, say, what do you want to order? I'm not going to get an answer because a dead person can't choose. A dead person can't will to do certain things. Now, Paul's not saying that somebody who's in sin is physically dead. He's saying they are spiritually dead, isn't he? So they are incapacitated from doing certain things. What things? Pleasing God. A dead person, a person who's dead in sin, cannot choose suddenly to be undead. They cannot choose suddenly to please God because they're what? They're spiritually dead. So this is very serious. Before you are called out by God to be in his church, you are not in a good way. You're not neutral. How many of you understand this? This is something that we so don't get in this day and age in the church. And in our gospel presentation, we preach to people like they're neutral to God. We preach to people like they're just weighing up the evidence and that they're being objective with that. And that way of thinking about things, this idea of just saying, oh, you know, um, let me just give you a bit more evidence to believe in God, okay? I know that you're just objectively weighing up the evidence and my job as a Christian is to somehow make it so appealing to you that you can't turn it down. So I'm going to promise you that if you become a Christian, God is going to bless you with wealth. He's going to bless you with health. Uh, he's going to make your life so happy and so easy. Let me tell you what, that's not the way that the Christians have preached the gospel for 2,000 years. What that is, is pagan philosophy. It's not the way the apostles preached. 
Because they understood something. They understood that the problem of sin was so deeply rooted in mankind that outside of God's intervention, outside of the grace of God, man will never choose Christ. Romans 1 says that before you were touched by God, before you were born again, you would take truth and suppress it. Paul says, for the wrath of God is being revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of man. Guess what? Who suppress the truth? Not weigh up the truth objectively, seeking to be fair to all sides. No. The sinful mass of mankind suppresses truth in unrighteousness. This is the difference between the Greco-Roman philosophy of the way that humans are and the biblical version of who humans are. Jesus never said that people do wrong because they don't understand how to do right. That's, the philosophy, that's Greek philosophy. Jesus said people don't do right because they don't want to do right. They don't want to know how to do right. They want to do what's right for them. <laughs> okay? So, Listen, when you're part of the church, you've been called out of this thing called sin. You've been called out of the power of sin. It's been broken in your life. You now are able to please God. You're able to do good works, to pray, to seek him, to love others, to worship him. To live a sacrificial life, as we spoke about earlier, to love others in need. Okay, These are things that you're freed into. Equally, you're, you're freed from the power of sin over your life. There should be, in the life of a Christian, you're not, I don't know about you, maybe you're uh, a different breed of Christian than me, but how many of you still battle sin on a daily basis, right? But being a Christian doesn't mean that you suddenly kind of like become perfect. It, it means that there should be an ever-increasing victory in your life over the sins that once captivated you. So there's a freedom. You're, you're called out of the sins that you formerly walked in. And you're sort of having victory over them more and more in your life. Also, what else are you called out of? You're called out from the power of Satan. Now, this one is intense because people, a lot of the time these days, if you speak to people on the streets, do you believe in the devil? They look at you like you've gone nuts, don't they? But how many of you in the last two, three years have realized that there must be some evil force out there doing something? <laughs> There's a lot of evidence for the presence of a real evil power in this world, isn't there? You read anything of 20th century history, 100 million people were killed under communist regimes. In the 20, did you know that? 100 million. It's insane. You know, the Nazi Germany, what they did to the Jewish people. There's a lot of overwhelming evidence for this person called the devil. And what 1 John 5, 19 says is that the whole world is under the power of the evil one. Did you know that? It's not something you hear preached very often, is it? But this is a verse that was written by the Apostle John after Christ rose, after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, but he still said the world, that is the sinful mass of humanity, is under the power of the devil. So you're not just captive to sin, you're not just captive to the world. When you're not a believer, when you're not in the church, you're actually captive to Satan. And becoming part of the church of Christ, being born again, frees you from that oppression. 
Colossians 1, 13 and 14 says, he's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And finally, you're called out of darkness. Amen. You're called out of darkness and into light. That's 1 Peter 2, 9. But you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. How many of you have been called out of darkness? Feel that call on your life to step out of that place of darkness and not being able to see your purpose in life, not being able to see who God is. How many of you have been called into light, the light of Jesus Christ, of seeing that he is your sole purpose for living in this world? That's what it means to be part of the church. So the ecclesia are the called out ones. There's not one time in the New Testament or the Old Testament when that word ecclesia is used to refer to a building or to an organization, an institution, a religion. It's only ever used to refer to people, a group of people. So ecclesia, church, means called out ones. But there's more. There's more. There's more to it than that. Because this word ecclesia was actually a really common word in the first century. And if you said the word ecclesia to some random Greek person on the streets in Athens at the time, you said, you coming to the ecclesia today? They wouldn't have gone, oh, you mean, uh, am I coming to the called out ones? They would not have understood it that way. And that's not the way the apostles ever explain it. This word ecclesia had a meaning. It had a meaning in the first century, which was this. It was the convened assembly. It was an assembly. It was a public gathering. Okay? It wasn't just a spiritual concept of people called out of things into light, out of sin, into righteousness. It wasn't just that mystical spiritual meaning. It actually had a super practical meaning, meaning that would have been understood by those who were Christians in the first century. It meant an assembly. It meant a public gathering. It meant a coming together. That's what it meant. And in fact, the word ecclesia is in the Old Testament as well as the New. It comes from the Hebrew word kahal. Kahal means assembly. It means gathering. It means community meeting. So as well as the church being born again people I think someone else described it better than that believers as well as the church being the fellowship of all believers across the world at all times that's the mystical meaning of church that's what we call the invisible church because you can't observe it with your natural eyes can you none of you can see every Christian throughout the world at all times in all places can you but that's what the church means that's the invisible church but this word ecclesia meant more than that. It meant a gathering. It meant a gathering, a convened assembly. Paul says in Romans 16.5, greet the church in their house. So this word ecclesia, church, has a lot to do 
not just with people who were born again, but with the idea of those people coming together, coming together to worship. This idea of coming together was absolutely central to the biblical concept of what church is all about. And that's why I say, you, you hear sometimes quotes, that Justin Bieber said a few years ago, he says, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. You don't have to go to church to be a Christian. And okay, on a level, we can all agree with that. Did the thief on the cross go to church? Did he end up in paradise with the Lord? Yeah. So no, you, you don't, going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to the car wash makes you a car. And that is true. However, that concept of you don't need to go to church to be a Christian is unheard of in 2,000 years of church history. If you'd said that to somebody 500 years ago, they'd go, what? What do you mean? Why would you do that to yourself? Because the idea of church has everything to do with gathering together, coming together to worship. That's what church is in the visible sense. And I think there are times, like we've experienced during the pandemic, when we can't gather, when we're not able to. We've all experienced that in a way that people haven't for a hundred years. And so there are times when the church is unable to gather, but generally speaking, gathering together is absolutely essential to what church is all about. So I think Hebrews 10, it says this, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Do not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. So I think at the moment, what we're seeing in the church across the world is where there's a kind of coming back to life again after we've had some really hard years. Um, you know, the pandemic just kind of took, took a lot of wind out of the sails of so many families and so many churches. I think there was an American study that said some churches have lost an average of 30% of their congregations during the pandemic. But I sense that there's now a life coming back into church again. There's a, there's a fresh sort of energy back in the church. And so I think this is an opportunity post-pandemic in the year 2023 for revitalization. That's how I feel. I feel there's a, a fresh hope. I feel like there's a renewed strength coming back into uh, the body of Christ right now. And so I think it's an opportunity at the top of 2023 um, for us just to look once again at our church attendance and just to say, Lord, how do you want me to go with this in 2023? Coming out of the pandemic, coming out of all of the difficulties we've had over the last few years, how do you want me to view this? How do you want me to uh, play this this year? Because the way that the early church saw it was that actually coming together um, was a real means of grace into their lives. It was a means of strength and a source of power, really, um, into our lives. And so it's something for us to look at again in 2023. We'll get more into how it is that 
that actually coming to church is really important and that does really build you up uh, spiritually. We'll look at that more as we go through the series, but for now it's just a thought. It's just putting it out there to say that I think we'll talk a bit more of church history as well, but I think if you go back to like 1400s, the 1400s, you're basically forced to go to church. If you didn't go to church, you were kind of cut off from the life of a normal person. You, you were deemed as an outsider. So it was legalistic, heavily legalistic, where it's like, if you don't go to church, you're not really a person. And now I think sometimes we can swing so far the other way to like the Justin Bieber quote, where it's like, okay, yeah, you don't have to go to church to be saved, but you probably shouldn't have an attitude that says it's not important, because it is important. If you're part of the invisible church, then we ought to be looking together, because the church is basically a group of people who are called out by God in order to gather together. Called out by God to gather together to serve and to worship him. I think that's really important to see. So it's just an opportunity for us to, to look at that. And I think I'll finish, I'll finish on this because this is great. But this idea of church, we've talked about what we're called out from, that we're called out from the world, we're called out from sin, called out from the power of the evil one, which is great news. <laughs> How many of you are glad to be set free from the schemes of the devil? He's a real foe. He's a real enemy. He has real schemes and commissions against each of your lives. And in the body of Christ, you're set free from that. We don't any longer need to be under his power and sway, which is wonderful. But who will we called out by? We're called out by God, aren't we? The church is the only institution in the whole planet that has a supernatural head. It's the only organization, the only institution that is supernatural in nature. It isn't like any other institution. Not like any other. Because it's governed by a supernatural being. It's governed by God. It's his idea. Did you know that? The ecclesia is God's plan A. I know that's a very trite way to put it, but it's his plan. The church wasn't thought up by some visionary. It wasn't thought up by some theologian in an ivory tower. It was God's idea. It's become popular, hasn't it, to say these days, well, Jesus never meant to start the church. It was kind of an accident, really. That's an idea that only started in the late 1700s and early 1800s. Why was that? What happened around that time? The Enlightenment. So much of the error that we see in Christianity these days actually springs out of that period of time, the Enlightenment period, when humanistic, atheistic thought became common in institutions. And philosophy and theology was impacted by it to the point where theologians would say things like that, that Jesus never intended to start the church. This is a lie. The church is God's idea. And so I have to remember that because it's so easy, isn't it, to pick holes in church. It's so easy to point out all that's wrong with it, uh, to, to say, Lord, it's such a mess. And it is. The visible church is, is, is a mess in many ways. There's lots we need to deal with. But that doesn't change the fact that it's God's idea. And if God started it, 
Who's going to end it? If God began the church, what man, what government, what power of mankind is going to end God's church? Nothing. Nothing. The Belgic Confession, this is a great one. This is so cool. It says this, Article 27. The church has existed from the beginning of the world. Get your head around that. How's that? The, the church has existed from the beginning of the world and will last until the end. As appears that the, from the fact that Christ is eternal king who cannot be without subjects. You can't be a king if you don't have any subjects. You can't be a king if you've got nothing to rule over. Christ is king. He cannot be without subjects and his holy church is preserved by God against the rage of the whole world. Even though for a time it may appear very small to human eyes as though a snuffed out. For example, during the very dangerous time of Ahab, the Lord preserved for himself 7,000 who did not bend their knees to Baal. That word ecclesia isn't just in the New Testament, it's used in the Old to describe the people of Israel. The people of Israel were God's church in the Old Testament. Did you know that? They were his church. In fact, Stephen in the book of Acts says, the church in the wilderness. He calls them the church. Before that, you've got Abraham, you've got Noah. You've always got a church. And sometimes it looks weak. Sometimes it looks beaten down. There were only about 70 odd people that went down to the land of Egypt with Jacob, weren't they? That was his church at the time. Amongst the whole mass of humanity, just 70 odd people. And right now, I think we're in a time when the church looks weak. We're in a time now when I think there's a remnant, a very small remnant of true believers that are coming out of false religion and are coming together to worship it looks weak it looks small but it's God's church and it cannot be defeated it cannot be ended because God began it I just want for us as we finish now to take mind of the fact that we here in this church just represent a very small portion of the visible church the church of God is much bigger than we are we didn't create the church we don't get to change what church is all about I don't get to come in as a pastor and say here's the vision I want you to follow the vision his great pastor Graham's got this amazing vision for Hope City Church oh we're just really just keyed in with what pastor Graham's saying for 2023 what a bunch of crock if you go to a church where you've got the pastor's vision on your fridge magnet and you're following it leave that church please leave that church I know what our vision is it's in the 66 books of the Bible. We don't get to decide what church is. We don't get to change what Ecclesia is supposed to be about. We don't get to have other prerogatives than what the Bible says we should have as prerogatives. We are part of the eternal body of Christ. And I want to ask you today, are you sure that you're part of his church? Do you know that you're part of his body? There are ways you can know how. Do you have faith in Christ? Do you believe in him? Do you trust in him for your salvation? Are you seeing a freedom from sins that used to really have you trapped? Are you stepping out of darkness and into light? Is your hope in him? These are ways we can know we're part of the church. Do we have a desire to be together? You know this, 
if we hate the church, we don't love Christ. If you hate church, you don't love Christ because that's his bride. That's his bride. You don't badmouth Jesus' bride and still love Jesus. You don't disrespect her and smear her and treat her wrong and still love Jesus. If we love Jesus, we love the church. We love our expression of it and we give ourselves to it just as he gave himself up for his bride. Let's pray. Lord God, we ask now that you would help us in the next few weeks and months to just be open to whatever it is that you're going to say to us through your word about what it means to be part of your body. We ask, Lord, that in this year, in this very small part of the body of Christ in this city of Wolverhampton, Lord, that you would shake us up. You would rouse us, Lord, to come together against all other options to come and serve and worship you together and just watch what you'll do in our lives if we'll commit to this. Lord, you've called us out to the world. We don't want to go back to it. If you've called us out of sin, we don't want to go back to it. If you've called us out of darkness, we don't want to go back to it. Lord, help us this year, 2023, to follow you in that call, to honor your work, to respect the means of grace that you've given us, to respect church as you've called us to respect it and to make it a priority in our lives. And Lord God, we pray that as we do that, as we commit to that plan, that in 12 months time we'll be able to look back and we're not going to see an empty building anymore. We're going to see a building full of passionate, reformed believers who are being transformed by the love of God. We'll be able to see a building full of new Christians. But Lord, we recognize if we won't commit to these things, we will not see that fruit come to manifest in our lives and in our church. So we pray, Lord, for a fresh resolve on these things. And also, Lord, we just pray that you would give us, once again, a desire to serve you. And that this is a fresh start in 2023, Lord. So I know for each of you, actually, as I'm praying, I know for each of you, maybe you don't do New Year's resolutions, but I know for each of you there are things that God has laid on your heart for this year, for this season. And if he hasn't, why don't you just ask him this week to highlight one thing, one thing that God is saying that you can bring into this fellowship. As we're talking about church, what is that one thing that you bring, that God wants you to bring, that God wants you to give in Hope City Church? What's one thing you can be in this place to honour him? Lord, we just want to thank you for your church. We bless you for it. And Father, we, we see lots of issues, but Lord, please, we ask you to just forgive us where maybe we've overstepped the mark. I, I put my hand up and say that, where I've maybe been too harsh about your church. Forgive me, Lord. This is your plan. And Lord, as we look into it more and more, we ask, Lord, you just help us to really get what it means to be the ecclesia of God. 
Jesus' name.